0: Father, I thank you um, for your word. I thank you for this opportunity that we have to, to gather on a Wednesday evening um, uh, just to, to spend time with each other and to spend time with you and, and to hear your word. I ask, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit you just guide me through the text, Lord, as I seek to, to preach and teach from it, Lord. May you speak to each of us, Father, and, and help us to put these things into practice, Lord, that we would hear these things and that we would be changed and it would move us. and and yeah, Lord, help us to get it and to grasp it, Father, that which you have for us today. So, Father, I thank you, Lord, that you are a God who, who desires to speak to his people. And, Father, I ask, Lord, that as we open your word, that you would speak to us and that we would be ready and willing to listen. Help us to filter out all the other, the noise and distractions of life and help us to focus intently on you and your word in this time. So, please, Father, guide us. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So, we're picking it up in First Samuel chapter 8. And kind of what we were looking at last week, we were looking at Samuel and effectively looking at how uh, he was a faithful judge and how he judged um, and how he led Israel for a time. Um, and now we're going to be kind of picking it up in the next chapter um, and essentially... Well, can I give you the last two verses of the previous chapter said this in 7 Samuel and, Samuel. and Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal and Mizpah and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Lamah, for his home was there. There he judged Israel and there he built an altar to the Lord. So we see that Samuel is a judge, and he is faithfully serving the people of Israel for uh, for the whole of his life. And now, basically, what happens is in this chapter we we essentially essentially moves on. It kind of skips years ahead um, until um, well, until we basically now to the point that he is an old man, and now he's coming to the end of his life and nearing the end of his ministry. And this is where we pick it up in chapter 8. So read with me. And what we'll do is we'll quickly read through it. It's not a terribly long chapter. So we'll read through it first and then we'll begin to unpack it. Um, So 1 Samuel chapter 8 verse 1 says this. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his son judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of the second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, but his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations." But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behaviour of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behaviour of the king who will reign over you? He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots, and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands, and captains over his fifties, will set some to plough his ground and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers Cooks and bakers, and he will take the best of the fields, your vineyards and olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep, and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. And the Lord will not hear you that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but we will have a king over us. That we also may be like all the nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Every man go to his city. So in the very first verse, the scene is set. And Samuel is an old man. He he has judged and led, led Israel for all of his life. And as he nears the end, he looks to the future and he decides who he's going to appoint. And he decides to choose his his son, to appoint his sons as judges. And it says in verse 1, as we read, Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his son judges over Israel. And his son was Joel and Abijah. And we do not know how Samuel came to his decision. And we don't really know much about Samuel or his relationship with his children, or or that matter of fact, with his wife. But we do know is that the decision that he makes—we don't know how he came to it—but we see that it it was a wrong decision. We see that, unlike their father, the children, the sons, fail to serve faithfully. And I I, I kind of—I appreciate Samuel's heart. We, We should have this heart. He has the heart to want to see his children serve. And it's a beautiful thing, even in my, in my own life, seeing, uh, even at my parents' church right now, being able to see three generations faithfully knowing Christ and serving that church, a, a grandfather, a, a grandson, and a, and a grandchild. And that is something that, that we should desire, something we should be praying into and seeking. We should be seeking to instruct our children in the way of the Lord um, but as this, this text kind of brings home to us, um, a faithful father does not necessarily guarantee faithful children. Um, as it says in the next verse, in verse 3, But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And we'll come onto to their conduct in a second. But first we see... Uh, just because we, we've given our lives to Christ, it doesn't mean that our children will too. It is still their choice to make. Uh, and and for, as I say, from the text it's kind of unclear to, to know what his relationship was with his children. Um, and we don't know if he was a faithful father or if he wasn't. Um, but we, we know this, that although we can't make our children believe, we can't force them to believe, we can live in such a way as to point them towards Christ, to lead them to him, and at the very least we don't become an excuse for them to turn away. At least they can look at our lives and say, well actually I, I've seen from this person that they have, they have lived out what they, what they taught. And, and, you know, and, and the question comes, how do, we, how do we faithfully do that? We could talk for hours and hours about how to faithfully lead. Um, but something which I found really helpful recently is in a book by a guy called Dave Briskers. And it's his book called Dear Son. And one of his chapters, he says this. And he kind of makes a link between what it means to be a dad and what it means to be a pastor. And he says it this way, A good pastor leads his church in the very same way a good dad leads his home. And a good dad leads his home in the very same way a good pastor leads his church. And the reason that he came to this conclusion was from Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, where he says this. And this is kind of, uh, uh, Paul is essentially telling Timothy the characteristics to look for when you appoint an elder, when you appoint an overseer. And he says this, that you should be looking for, he must be, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Essentially, he says that when you're looking to appoint someone in leadership, look to how he leads his family, look to how he is at home. And then he goes on to further explain in, in this book, this Son, he says this, Pastoral ministry consists essentially of three big functions. Preaching the gospel, presenting a good model for others to imitate, and protecting the church from doctrinal error and dangerous leaders. So if a dad were to function in his home as a pastor does within a church family, he would see his primary responsibilities as preacher, role model, and protector. And essentially, how are we called to lead our children? It is this. We are called to preach the gospel, to model the gospel, and then to protect them, and, but then also to protect the gospel. And that's, that's a huge call. A huge call for any father. But we know through the Holy Spirit, he empowers us. And a good place to start is actually found in Deuteronomy. Right back in the Old Testament, where it says this in chapter 6. And verse 4 to 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. So first of all, the first place is to serve the Lord. Your heart and desire should be for him first and foremost, for him alone. And you should treasure all of his commands in your heart. So first of all, there's that vertical relationship. But then out of that, he then says this, you shall teach them diligently to your children. And and that's the first important thing. He says that you, you can't pass on what you don't already have. It's the idea that have that personal relationship with Christ first and then out of that you can then serve your children. And it says, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. He says, look, First of all, know and love Jesus and walk with him. And then as you're living your life with your children, in every moment, look for those teachable moments and look to share the gospel and look to display the gospel. And that is a great place to start. And as I say, it's kind of unclear from the text as to what kind of Father Samuel was. And this is just my opinion, because I don't think it's in the text, but it's in my opinion... I, I, I think personally that for the most part he was a good father. And I think he did model it clearly. And, and, and what it means to be a faithful leader, I think he modelled it clearly because others saw it. When we see in verse 3 and 4 where it says, But his sons did not walk in his ways, and your sons did not walk in your ways. Both, both the author and the nation of Israel noticed how Samuel lived his life they noticed, the author and, and, and the people of Israel noticed that the way in which Samuel led was faithful and it was different to the way that his children were leading. And um, part of me, like if it was clear to them, surely it would have been clear to his, his children. And the other reason I think that as well is when it says they turned aside. And for me, that implies the idea of that they saw how he was walking and maybe for a time they were walking that way, but then they turned aside. It wasn't that they were maybe potentially always going that way, but they saw the way or they walked it part of the way. But then, instead of continuing to walk, they turned aside. And this is what they turned aside to. It says, they turned aside after dishonest gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And unlike their father, Samuel's son didn't lead well. And this is where they went wrong. First of all, they did not walk in the way of their father and they turned aside from the way. So they didn't walk, they turned aside and they sought after dishonest gain. They took bribes and they perverted justice. Essentially, they, they lived in complete rebellion against what God had called them to and it's so funny because we actually see if we look in scripture and they would have had they would have had this that we actually see that God specifically tells them what it means to lead what it means to judge and it's as if they they read the job description and decided to do the complete opposite in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 16 he says you shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates and it says you shall not pervert justice you shall not show partiality nor take a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous yeah it's like they they got the job description and it's like okay this is what I've got to do I've got to do this I've got to do this I've got to do this and then they decided to do the complete opposite and it's in clear rebellion against God it's in clear disobedience to what he had called them to do and called them to be Uh, and and it's really sad because you kind of see a progression And you see it this way. First of all, they turned aside from their father. And and they turned aside from the way of their father. And it always starts like that. It always starts off. You turn away from it. You take your eyes off the goal. You take your eyes on how you're meant to be living. You turn it, your gaze, onto something else. And as soon as they took their eyes off of God, onto something else, that's when they started to seek after dishonest gain. They went in search of something else other than God and the result was they took bribes and they perverted justice essentially what happened was they were willing to they were willing to compromise they were willing to forsake that calling that God had given them for dishonest gain and we don't even know what that dishonest gain was whether that was financial gain or, or, or just any other kind of worldly pension we, we just don't know all we know is that they went in search of something else. And when we kind of even look at the idea of what it means to bribe, to bribe is to dishonestly persuade someone to act in one's favour by a gift of money or other inducement. Essentially, to, to receive a bribe, it means you have a price. It means you can be bought you're willing to do whatever you're asked, even if it's wrong, just to receive your promised prize. And it doesn't have to be money. It can be fame or lust or popularity. The list goes on. Ultimately, their issue was a worship issue. They showed that their dishonest gain, whatever that was, was more precious to them than God. And and, and that, that brings the question back on to ourselves. Is there an idol in our life that we are willing to compromise for. And when we're willing to compromise what God says is right and wrong for something else, we show who or what we truly worship. And, And there are consequences to that. Taking that bribe, just like sin, it blinds us. And as it says in Exodus 23, 8, you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. We need pastors and leaders who are willing to do what's right, even when it costs them. Men that cannot be bought by popularity, or wealth, or lust, or fame, or comfort. And the things we desire men like that to lead us, right? We want people like that to lead us. So let us be that kind of man. Let's be that kind of leader. And it's strange, although the people of Israel wanted leaders that were faithful, they wanted, I mean, they they look at these guys and they're like, Samuel, your sons, they ain't faithful, we don't want them. But it seems that they themselves weren't willing to live to the same standard. And as we'll see in a second in their request, just as the sons went in search of something else other than God, we see that the, the, the nation was doing the same. And it says this in verse four to five. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, "Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations." And on on the surface, we we look at that request and we may even think, "Oh, what's the the big deal? They They wanted a king. What's the big deal?" Uh, you know, the leaders You know, next in 9 to take over were, were pretty useless. We could all look and see that. Like, you know, leaders were pretty useless. They wanted a king. Um, they just wanted someone to lead them, right? Um, but the truth is that when we look at it, and, when we, and, we'll, and, and we'll, as, we, as we read through the text, God exposes the true heart behind that request. Their demand was ultimately rejecting God. And as I say, we'll look at that a bit later on. But for now, just know that that request for an earthly king was wrong. And it showed where their hearts truly were, and it couldn't be excused by the unfaithfulness of Samuel's sons. Their request was wrong, and we'll begin to unpack why that is later on. And the first sign that we get, kind of the first clue that we get into their, their hearts is found in the statement when they say, Now make us a king to judge us, like all the nations. And at the core of the people was a heart to be like the world around them. Israel was called to be set apart from the world. They were called to be, to be different, to be distinct, yet they desired to be the very thing that God called them to be different from. And the crazy thing is this, this issue of, of God's people wanting to be more like the world it, it's, it's still an issue today. Even in the church, we see there are people who, and we're guilty of it ourselves, we, we look at the world around us and think, yeah, I want to be like the world when, when God is calling us to be different. He's calling us to be set apart. And it's crazy when you get into conversations like, and you have people was like, well, come on, man, you, just, you need to change with the world. You need to be more, you know, the world around us is changing. You need to be more like it. And it's crazy because when we actually look at what Scripture says continually, it says, no, you are different from the world. I'm calling you to be different. And God's like, my standard of right and wrong is not the same as the world. They are gonna, there is going to be conflict. And in that conflict, it is not you to change to become like the world, but it's for you to remain and be set apart. And even Jesus addresses this issue to his disciples in John 17, where he says, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. What the world thinks is right and wrong is different to what God says. God is set apart from the world and he calls us to be the same. What the world pursues and what the world desires is different from what God pursues and what God desires. They are in opposition. So why do we keep trying to be like the world and change Jesus to fit our twisted vision? And it all started with Israel from that point. They looked at the world around and said, I want to be like the world. And this is what Samuel's response was. The thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. Samuel is upset by the request. It displeases him. So what does he do? He prays. He goes to the Lord and he asks for God's opinion on the man. He's like, Lord, they, they had this request. I, this, this is hurting me. What, what, what's going on? And this is how God responds. And, and ultimately, this, this always comes to what is, God view, what is God's view on the situation? We may have our own opinion. So the world will have its own opinion. But the most important opinion is God. What does he say about the situation? What does, is he saying it's right or is he saying it's wrong? And how does he say we should respond? And this is what God says to Samuel. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people. In all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. The truth was that Israel already had a king. And we've kind of looked at it a bit this this before, even a couple of weeks ago on Sunday when we were looking at some of the events ahead of this. The issue wasn't that Israel didn't have a king, but was that they didn't recognise their true king. God was their king. God was their king. And yet instead they wanted an earthly king and in the process they rejected God. They wanted someone else to reign over them and they chose a lesser king. Who do you want to reign over you? Do you want it to be God or do you want it to be someone or something else? if this answer is someone else, you've rejected God. Is Jesus truly the king of my life or have I settled for a lesser worldly king? And God exposes their sin, but then he also encourages Samuel. And he says to them, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. It's me they've rejected. And there will be moments when Jesus says the same to us. When we, for example, when we lovingly preach the Gospels, And if people reject it, it's not them necessarily rejecting us, but rather rejecting him. And in those moments when we're called to stand for truth, to stand for what God says is right and wrong, and as a result we receive rejection, God comes to us and says, look, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Their issue isn't with you, their ultimate issue is with me. They may lash out of you, but their true problem is with me, and that's who they need to reconcile with. And that's what we see here. But then God continues. Because this isn't the first time that Israel has done this. This isn't the first time Israel has been guilty of rejecting God. And he says this in verse 8. And this is still the Lord speaking to Samuel. According to all the works which they have done since the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day with which they have forsaken me, and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. At the heart of Israel was an issue of idolatry. And they had repeatedly turned their back on God and worshipped idols. And this issue isn't, isn't unique to Israel. It, idolatry is still rampant today. And we, we, may, we may not bow down to, to and images, but the things in which we bow down are still just as real and still just as powerful and still just as sinful and uh, in, in his book tim keller on um, in his book counterfeit gods he he gives us some questions to to kind of flesh out and helpfully and and define what idolatry is in a very helpful way and he says it this one i've shared it before Where he says this anything an idol is anything more important to you than god an idol is anything that absorbs your heart and your, your imagination more than God. And anything you seek to give you, what only God can give. And whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. Anything that becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life and identity. In light of these definitions, are there any idols in our own lives? Are we guilty of choosing a different king? And 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 the truth is you cannot do both. It's either one or the other. You either forsake false gods and serve the true living God, or you forsake the true God in search of someone or something else. And there are always consequences for choosing a different king, which God continually warns us of. And he says this in verse 9. Now therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behaviour of the king who will reign over them. God comes to Samuel and he says, look, look okay, I'm, I'm going to heed the call, but I want you to go to the people and forewarn them. I want you to clearly present what this choice will result in. That they will have no doubt that what this choice will be. He says, look, I want you to show them the consequences of when they choose a lesser king. And then we see Samuel. He, Samuel is obedient. He returns to the people and he warns them. And we see this in this long discourse. And he says in verse 10, So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He says, look, this, this is, if, if, you, if you make this choice, if you go down this path, if you choose this king, these are what the consequences are. And then he goes on and he says, this king will take your sons And then further along, well, let's continue refluxing. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. Will set some to plough his ground and reap his harvest. And some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. And he will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves and the Lord will not hear you in that day. There is a recurring phrase throughout that discourse and maybe you picked up on it, a recurring phrase where he says, he will take, he will take and he will take. Our false king will always fail us and will always leave us empty. And it ends up being voluntary slavery, right? We choose the lesser king, we make that choice, and in the the end, that king ends up enslaving us. And God ends his warning by saying, if they knowingly reject him and his rule in search of someone else, there will be consequences. God's like, I'm warning you. This is what's going to happen. If, you, if you're in search of another king, if you appoint another king over your life other than me, this will be the result. They will fail you. And then he carries on. And, and he gives like a very specific one. He says, for Israel, and he says right at the end, and you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves and the Lord will not hear you in that day. For Israel, there would come a day when they would cry out, but God wouldn't hear them. And he would allow them to experience the full consequences of their choice. And it's a reminder to us that although God is is slow to anger and he is merciful, there will come a time when time will run out, when it's too late to cry out and judgment will come. And for the Christian, we know, we know that we're eternally secure. We know our salvation is secure and we've been saved from that eternal judgment. But there will be times when if we're not quick to repent, we may feel the full weight of the earthly consequences of our actions. And then we see this play out. That's, just, that's how it plays out for us. This is how it plays out for those who aren't believers, for those who don't believe who have not put their trust in God, there will come a point where time runs out, where we die and it's too late. And, it, and, and we, we need to be wary of that. If, if that is our position, we, we need to give our lives to Christ now. Because we don't know when it could end. And, and as Peter says in his letter regarding this, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's desire is that you would come to repentance. He's not slack. Judgment is coming. So do not take the, the time he's allowed for granted. Don't take that for granted. And it reminds me of the account of Noah. And having a, the opportunity of doing it with the kids on Sunday was quite cool, actually. We um, even got to build an ark, which is always good fun. But well, just reading up on it, I was, uh, just, it, it just kind of just reminded, and kind of listening to a couple of sermons, and just reminded that how God could have easily have built the ark overnight. God could have done that a miracle and literally been like Noah, bam, here's your ark, get in, flood's coming. But as we kind of read it, it He allowed Noah to take years and years and years to make it. Literally decades and decades to make it. Why? Because he desired for those around to repent, and you and you just get the idea of God being like, man, it's one more day. Just give them one more day. Maybe today will be the day that they will repent. And you think about the amount of time he gave them, and yet how they took that time for granted and they failed to listen. And and just that thing of, man, just one more day. I just want to give one more day, one more day. Maybe today will be that day that they turn, that they repent. But in the end, as we saw with Noah, they just wouldn't listen. And eventually the door was closed. Repent now before it's too late. And for the unbeliever, repent before you face eternal and lasting judgment. And for the Christian, repent before you face the full consequences of your sin. And even in the lives of Christians, there are moments where where we where we don't fully reap the consequences. As if He gives us kind of a grace period, and you're like, why does He do that? Because He wants us to turn. Because He wants us to repent without having to bring on judgment. Even as believers, if we continually walk away from Him, there will be those moments that, that kind of as, as if a grace period where God's God like, Look, I'm 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 holding back the full consequences because I want you to turn. I want you to repent. Man, it would be so much better, so much easier if you just turn now. And we see that there will come a time when that time's up. And we see that when that judgment comes. But as we looked at a couple of weeks, as I quoted from a guy called J.D. Greer, any judgment before the ultimate judgment is mercy because it can wake you up before it is eternally too late. And we can see that even as Christians there our moments, that even when we are so slow to repent and that judgment finally does come, that earthly judgment, the earthly consequences, that God is still faithful. And that actually when we then look back at those events, we're like, actually, no, that was grace because I was completely out of control. And the only way he could stop me was to bring about that judgment. So the question is, as we look at the text, how do the people respond? I mean, Samuel makes it clear. He's like, this is what will happen. These are the consequences. And this is what happens. Verse 19, nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us, and go out before us and fight our battles despite God's plea despite God's warning through Samuel the people refused to listen they were completely driven by a desire for for a different king they just wouldn't heed the warning and have you ever had that you ever had those moments where you you see a friend turning aside you see them going in that direction and you're warning them, you're pleading. You're like, no, you do not understand the path you are taking. And we see there are moments where even as Christians we're so consumed by that other king that we just won't listen to reason. And they just wouldn't hear. And in those moments when we're pleading with, our, with other believers, God knows our pain and God feels it even more deeply than we do. Because it is Him that they are ultimately rejecting. And as we looked at, as I said, a couple of weeks ago, all the things that they sought for in a king were meant to be met by God. And what were these things? And as we looked at, as I say, we looked at a few weeks ago um, when we went through uh, Samuel 12 on a Sunday, they wanted a king to be or rule over them. They wanted a king to judge them, to go out before them and to fight their battles. The point was, these things were meant to be fulfilled by the one and only true King God. Are you looking to someone or something else other than God to be over you in the place of ultimate authority, to determine what is right and wrong for you, to lead you to fight your battles for you? And in your life, come, uh, and, and in our lives, does is. Does it come, do all these things come from the true and living God or a false and lesser God? And, and granted, God can use people in, in different ways to do these different things in different levels, but is He the ultimate in all those areas? Is Jesus my ultimate authority? Is Jesus my ultimate morality? Is Jesus my ultimate guidance? Is Jesus my ultimate strength as the true king he should be, or have I chosen another lesser king? And then the chapter ends, and the people make their choice. And it says this in verse 21. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. And so the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, every man go to his city. The choice has been made. And despite the warnings, the people refuse to listen to God. They reject him and his word and set into motion the chain of adventures we will see unfold throughout the remainder of this book. But let me see, throughout the history of Israel, they would have both good kings and bad kings. But no matter the quality of king, none of them were sufficient. And we see it. There were moments where they actually had some half-decent kings. They had good kings. But then there were many times where they had bad kings. But no matter the quality of the king, they were never enough. They were never sufficient. And even the faithful ones, even like David at times failed them. They were in need of a greater king. They were in need of the true king. And, And even just thinking about it, As preparing. It's, It's crazy to think, but the very same king that Israel rejected in this chapter is the very same king who would one day become a man, who would take on the role of a servant, and where every other king failed, he would succeed. And this is the same king who willingly went to the cross and died for the sins of the very people who rejected him. And this is the same king who rose again on the third day, conquering sin and death. And this is the same king who now offers us life through faith. The same king who promises to live inside of us and actually make it possible to be faithful to him. The same king who will one day return and bring his people to himself to live with him forever. And this king... Is Jesus. So as we look at this chapter, as we look at this request, how they rejected the true and living king, the story of the Bible is, despite them rejecting that king, that same king came and died for them. So that they could be given new hearts and so they could truly become his people. So the question comes to me and to you. Is this? Is this Jesus the king of my life? Or am I guilty, just like the Israelites, of rejecting him? And in light of all that this true king Jesus has done, and in light of all that he does do, every other king isn't sufficient, and every other king will leave us empty. So my encouragement to you and to me is this, that we would choose the true king. That we would forsake every other lesser king and put our full faith, our full trust, our full weight in that true king. That we would heed the warning, that we would learn from the mistakes of the Israelites. And that we would seek to walk faithfully in obedience to our King of kings, our Lord of lords, knowing that one day we will get to be in the very presence of that King, knowing that that King is not just over us, but he lives in us and through us and empowers us to live a life that we can never live on our own. So let us pray together. Father, I thank you for this chapter, Lord, and I thank you, Lord, just for the example that the Israelites are to us and Lord it's it's so easy to kind of look back and be like ah, look look at those Israelites I mean how could they be so foolish but the truth is we 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 are guilty of being just like them and Lord if we are in that place today Lord forgive us Lord forgive us for the moments where we've chosen a lesser king Lord we, we repent of that we forsake that and we want to turn back to you Lord and worship you as the true king. And Father, I thank you, Lord, that that despite their rejection of you, despite our rejection of you, you continue to be faithful, you continue to pursue us, you, you continue to reach out to us. So, Father, our prayer is that we would see you and, and, and treat you and respond to you as the true king of our lives. That we would forsake any other Every other lesser king, every other idol, we would forsake them and instead run full on to you. Lord, we invite you to be the king of our lives. And we ask you by your Holy Spirit, enable us to live a life worthy of that calling. May you work in us that we would be obedient to you, our king of kings and our lord of lords. So, Father, we invite you once again, come be the king of our lives. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.